Free college is not just a Bernie Sanders lefty idea. Surprisingly, there's a lot of support from Republicans for that. I'm Bert Cohen, and with your help, we are keeping democracy alive. What's going on? He's not breathing. Can you get a pulse? Barely. Call a code. Get Nambia back from the nurse's station. Heart's still working, means synapses are still firing. We just need to get a message through. The guy who really founded that connection between Israel and the evangelicals was Bibi Netanyahu. There's not going to be a war by Russia to conquer the United States. There's not going to be a war by China to conquer the United States. No country is going to conquer the United States. The United States is destroying itself because of the size of its military. So yes, there's a huge gap between public opinion and public policy, and uh, people don't feel that they can do very much. I speak tonight for the dignity of man. Bernie Sanders connected powerfully with young people. Possibly the biggest reason was his directly addressing student debt and the prospect of free college for all. At his rallies, he'd ask for a show of hands as to college debt. The number of hands raised was always impressive, and the amounts they owed were really burdensome. Our guest today, author Michelle Miller-Adams, defies conventional wisdom that this is purely a left-wing unrealistic pipe dream. She argues that free college could actually be the, quote, elusive holy grail of public policy, a big, bold move taken with bipartisan support. On the campaign trail, candidate Biden got hopes up for many with his favoring such a move. Now he's president, and he does have a bigger and bolder agenda than agenda that many expected. The Demo- but Democrats lost seats in the House and Senate. There's no way Republicans who always favor the rich campaign contributors and ignore the problems of ordinary people would ever even think about supporting free college. Or is it actually possible? Miller Adams says free college may actually be one of the best opportunities Biden has to work across the aisle. Such optimism seems to invite cognitive dissonance. But if a free college, if free college can gain support and become reality in a redder than red state like Tennessee, maybe she's on to something. Her new book is titled The Path to Free College in Pursuit of Access, Equity and Prosperity. And as one reviewer wrote of it, Miller Adams offers the essential history, evidence, and critical guidance needed to advance it from theory to policy. Sounds good to me. Michelle Miller Adams is our guest today on Keeping Democracy Alive. Thanks for being with us. Thank you so much, Bert. I'm really happy to be here. Well, Michelle Miller Adams is a senior researcher at the W.E. Upjohn Institute for Employment Research and a professor of political science at Grand Valley State University. She's also the author of The Power of a Promise, Education and Economic Renewal in Kalamazoo and Promise Nation, Transforming Communities Through Place-Based Scholarships. Miller Adams speaks regularly with local and national media about free college programs and consults with states and communities designing their own promise initiatives. Well, we'll have to talk about that. How did this book come to be written? Why now? Uh, that's, that's, the, that's the big question, because some of the trends that I address in the book uh, really steep increases in the price of college, concerns about racial and economic equity in terms of who gets college degrees, 
the need to have some kind of post-secondary credential or degree to be successful in the workplace, those are not new trends. Those have been underway for for years and, and actually decades. So uh, the interesting question that I needed to grapple with uh, in the book and also in the decision to write the book is why at this moment have so many different efforts at the local, state, and national level crystallized to promote this idea that college should be free? And as I thought about this, I really wound up looking at the period after the 2008 financial and housing crisis and the very slow an uneven recovery from that uh, deep, deep economic recession. And um, I saw, reflected in national political discourse, uh, growing impatience with existing inequality generated basically by the workings of capitalism, and um, people just starting to understand at a deep level that the benefits of the recovery were unequally were falling unequally on different populations. The rich were getting richer, the the poor were staying poor, and the middle class was stuck. And I think that um, college prices are one of the most obvious and easily available signals of uh, a resource that's really valuable but has become increasingly out of reach for low- and middle-income people. So I think that's what this, this growing attention to inequality uh, particularly as we grew out of the 2008 and after recession, and then, of course, exacerbated by the pandemic and related trends, has made free college a, a much more prominent and, and better-known idea and, and possible partial solution. Interesting. That That's some very good points there. And clearly racial justice and ad- addressing climate change are at the top of the national political agenda. Is free college near that level of importance for America's future, do you think? I think free college is a tool, uh, not really so much a tool to address climate change, but certainly a tool to address racial and economic justice. And uh, what I have seen from the Biden administration, both during the campaign and in these early months of governing, is a a serious attention to the equity, the racial and economic equity impacts of really all of their policies. It's a a strand that runs through everything they're considering doing. And I know that they ask themselves and they ask the people working on policy ideas, what is the racial and economic equity impact of this policy? And so I think uh, free college, depending on how it is structured and assuming it can be enacted into law, is an important tool in serving uh, lower income and students, many of whom are students of color, who are not on a post-secondary pathway or who have struggled to afford college. Oh, I'm sure. It's it's gotten just, it's unbelievably expensive. It just goes up and up and up. And, uh, you know, and I know the, 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 <laughs> the, the, the faculty largely doesn't get overpaid, maybe, you know, the top-notch colleges, but they, they work hard. And, I, I, it's 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 very expensive, and I guess you know they depend on, uh, on grants and things like that because tuition alone apparently doesn't even pay for it all. It, it yes, I can attest as a as a faculty member at a large public regional university in Michigan. We are definitely not overpaid, I'm sure. and our pay has not really gone up very much. Whereas the price of tuition has gone up 
tremendously. I actually just took a look earlier this week at my own university's tuition rates from when I started 15 years ago to the present, and um, they have they have doubled. And uh, mm. that's an extraordinary rate of growth, a, a 100% increase. And when you think about the, the main reason why, and you dig into the various explanations for rising costs, the main reason is that the state provides less support uh. for students than they used to. So when a university has to keep operating and is getting less money from the state, which has happened really all over the country, uh, the only way they can do that is turn to increasing tuition. And the budgets get balanced on the back of students who, if they want a college degree, need to pay more and more for it. Mm. Sounds kind of dumb to me, actually, to have that policy. <laughs> and, it, and maybe you can talk about in what ways uh, broadly accessible, affordable higher education is in the public interest that the state legislatures seem to be missing out on. Right. I'll be glad to, because that's a really important point and a, a really important theme of the book. And I think um, legislators understand that uh, supporting education systems is an investment. It's not just money you're you know, pouring down the drain. You're actually making an investment in the economy for the future. But uh, at least in our state and many other states, in an economic downturn, the options are to cut spending or to raise taxes. And there's been an aversion in this country for 40 years now to raising taxes, even to pay for valuable investments, valuable public resources. So um, as you note, investing in higher ed and, and making it affordable and accessible for large portions of the population to get some kind of college degree or shorter-term credential is in the societal interest. It helps those students, certainly. They will earn more money uh, with some kind of degree or certificate, but it also helps the, the regional, the state economy, the national economy. It helps us be more competitive. It helps human capital be more productive. Uh, it helps us compete globally. It helps us provide uh, greater productivity and higher economic growth, which benefits even the people who aren't going to college and getting degrees. So that's those are some of the ways in which, and, and there's, a, there's also a lot of arguments about the, the non-economic benefits of higher ed. People who go to college are uh, more likely to vote. They're more mm -hmm. likely to be engaged uh, a lot, be, be productive and engaged citizens, more likely to volunteer. But even just thinking about the economic benefits, uh, it's a very important thing to know that if you live in a community with a lot of college-educated workers who command higher wages, your wages are going to be higher, too, even if you don't have that college degree. So that's one example of how there are these um, economic benefits that extend beyond uh, the, the, the individual or, or private level to the public sphere. Well, I did want to ask about uh, a lot of people, I think, are are thinking that a college degree doesn't really guarantee you m more money, one individual. And you're talking about the, you know, the other being a member of society and contributing in so many other ways. But I wonder about having a college degree, it, it does not ensure economic security. Isn't a college degree less meaningful now? 
a college degree is still, especially a four-year degree, a bachelor's degree, still one of the best investments you can make, even if it has become increasingly expensive to get it. Mm. If you can manage those costs and get your bachelor's degree, your lifetime earnings will be, on average, a million dollars higher than people without bachelor's degrees. So there are huge returns to higher ed. There are even higher returns if you get a master's or a a, a professional degree, a a post-master's degree. And there are returns to getting, they're they're lower, but there are still returns to getting an associate degree. Mm -hmm. And then there are some short-term high-demand occupations where you can get a relatively short-term certification and earn uh, or, or vocational training and earn as much as people with bachelor's degrees. So I want to be sure that when we're talking about college and access to college, we're not just talking about everybody going off to a four-year institution and getting a bachelor's degree. There's a whole range of post-secondary education and training options that, that offer returns on, on investment. What doesn't give you returns is just um, – going to college and, and taking classes and then not completing your degree, possibly right. stopping out because you can't afford tuition or you have to work and can't manage your course load. That does not, just taking some college classes doesn't really give you much of a return. Well, that is a, a, a common problem, as I understand from your book, that students may start college but have difficulty remaining for either the two or the four years, what are some ways to address that? I mean, you know, we can get the kids into the college, but but helping them stay there, what what are ways to address? Right. And, and that problem, I mean, that that problem of starting and not completing is is goes across higher ed sectors, but it's a it's particularly acute at the community college level, and that's because community colleges have quite low barriers to entry. Most of them are open admission institutions, so it's not a huge ordeal to get in. They're not that expensive, so in terms of tuition, so uh, there's not that big concern about how much money will I need to borrow to get a, go to community college. So you wind up with a lot of students at community college who are lower income. And it turns out that the costs of going to college go way beyond tuition. Tuition may be reasonable, but living expenses are not, and the opportunity cost, giving up some of the time that you might otherwise spend working in order to go to classes and complete your degree, that's also high. And I think, you know, we need to revise our um, maybe particularly people who are a little older, like like myself, have an image of community college students as freshly hatched high school graduates. And and that's not who is in community college. True. Many, most people in community college are older adults. Many of them have jobs, many of them have families, taking care of kids. And so there's some real-world issues as well as financial issues that can intervene with progression. What I see, even in the college where I teach, the university where I teach, which is a four-year institution, students are strapped for money. Mm -hmm. Uh, The federal aid uh, through Pell Grants to low-income students has utterly failed to keep up with rising college costs. Mm. So even... Students are getting Pell Grants. They don't even cover their tuition, let alone their living expenses. So students are working. They're working a lot. I had a student this semester whose parents had been laid off in the pandemic, and she was working three jobs. And it's probably no surprise to say she didn't really get to class all that much. Uh, so there, there are a lot of strategies that, that can help. 
uh, more money <laughs> or reducing the cost of tuition through free college programs is a, a really critical part of that is just increasing Pell Grants. But there are also, um, there's a, a movement to make emergency grants available for students who might have a small unexpected uh, uh-huh. expense come up that leads them to drop out. And then there's the issue of students starting, particularly community college, who are not either academically prepared to be successful or they don't have that knowledge of what's involved in being successful in college. And there are a lot of programs that are being tried around around the country that generally involve coaching. Sometimes they are cohort programs where people go through this process together. There's summer bridge programs. It is definitely not rocket science, but none of it is free. So it's supporting students to be successful, both financially, but also in terms of that college knowledge and whatever academic help they might need is critical to getting more college graduates and helping people get degrees. Boy, it's important to look at this issue with uh, a fresh eye, that's for sure. And uh, you provide uh, quite a bit of that. For those who may have just tuned in, Bert Cohen here, the show is Keeping Democracy Alive. And we're talking uh, with uh, author Michelle Miller-Adams about her new book, The Path to Free College in Pursuit of Access, Equity, and Prosperity. The idea of free college did not originate with Bernie Sanders. He certainly brought it to the uh, public's attention. What happened on November 10th, 2005, of significance to the free college movement? I always love to tell the story, even though I wasn't present that particular evening at the school board meeting of the Kalamazoo Public Schools, which is where I live. Uh, at that school board meeting, the and, and just to know, the Kalamazoo Public Schools, it's a small to medium-sized school district. Uh, most of the students in it are um, qualified for free and reduced lunch, so it's a, a high-poverty high poverty school district. It has uh, relatively diverse uh, racial groups that attend it. It's about 50% black, um, 35% white, maybe 10% Hispanic. So it's a diverse urban high poverty school district and attended by by all kinds of students. Uh, And that night, the superintendent of the school district announced to the board and to the community that a group of anonymous donors in the community, a group of wealthy individuals, had committed to paying college tuition and fees for uh, every graduate of that school district, provided they had spent a minimum of four years within the school district. And they would pay for them to attend any of, at this point, there are 59 eligible institutions in the state of Michigan. Uh, They will not pay for you to leave the state of Michigan uh, for college. And they range from community college to some voc tech programs to our flagship uh, public and uh, institutions and private institutions. And a very important part of this promise, which became known as the Kalamazoo Promise, is that it is set up to continue in perpetuity. This wasn't a one-shot deal or a five-year program. This is a, an ongoing part of now uh, the fabric of the community and a resource available to students who attend the school district. Wow. That, and, and Michigan is, you know, it's not exactly a, a uh, solid blue state, that's for sure. There's been some uh, ch- challenges out there. And, and as you say, uh, probably the best argument for how a free college program can be fashioned to earn bipartisan support can be found in Michigan. And some of the listeners may remember the warlike partisan divide 
in that state with fierce Trumpists threatening to kidnap the governor. They banged on the windows when the ballots were being counted to stop the count. That Michigan? Really? Do tell. Yes, we're, we're a, a very complicated state with uh, very blue urban centers, and, and Kalamazoo itself is kind of a blue dot in a, in a sea of red on uh-huh. the more rural side of West Michigan. But, you know, we, we have a Republican legislature. We go back and forth between Republican and Democratic governors. Uh, we have Democratic senators. So it's, it's a very unusual place. But, yes, the tension between our current Democratic governor, Governor Gretchen Whitmer, yes. and the Republican legislature is very strong. So it was very, I think, notable when last fall the legislature agreed to fund a – it's a much more modest program than the Kalamazoo Promise, which is an extremely generous program. But it's a, free, a tuition-free college program for community college for adults in the state who do not mm-hmm. have college degrees. And it enjoys bipartisan support. I would say that these uh, place-based scholarship programs, these local programs like the Kalamazoo Promise, and there are close to 200 of them now around the country, mm. they are nonpartisan. They happen in every type of community of every political hue that we have. Uh, but at the state level, we've seen about 15 to 20 states, depending on how you define it, offer a tuition-free path to their residents. And this, 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 this has been a bipartisan project. The best known of these is in Tennessee, which is a very red state. Yeah. And they have two robust uh, tuition-free college programs. And the Michigan program I just mentioned, which is called Michigan Reconnect, is modeled on Tennessee Reconnect, which um, predated it by about three or four years. And as you say, Tennessee is one of the reddest states in the country. How, how do they do that? And, and where does the money come from for Tennessee and Michigan? And a lot of these, is it this, the state legislature's gone along with the idea? They've, they've bought into the idea that this is a good investment? They have, although the funding structure varies from state to state. In Tennessee, they have a very wealthy lottery that they've had for a long time. Ah. And both the Tennessee Promise and the Tennessee Reconnect program, which is the program for adults, are funded out of lottery proceeds. They actually have a lottery uh, endowment, an endowed fund that generates sufficient resources. So it is public money, but it is not coming directly out of the budget. In other states, including in Michigan, New York, Oregon, Washington, um, Maryland, uh, Oklahoma, Indiana, there are tuition-free college programs. They all look different from state to state, but those are funded from state budgets. And, of course, that's a more more vulnerable form of funding because they need to be refunded every year or every few years. And, you know, that that can be, again, in a downturn. Most of these programs uh, post-date the 2008 recession, so we don't know what would happen in in an economic downturn to those programs. And I'll tell you, from my own experience in the uh, New Hampshire State Senate, (laughs) there was always a, a funding battle between the University of New Hampshire, which has community colleges as well, and more right-wing Republicans in the legislature, and it's gotten worse since I was there. And I wonder, you know, how you get them to, to buy into it. Do they? Well, I think Go ahead. A, a really critical element of support for a tuition-free college program, especially in more Republican-leaning states, is the support of the business community. Uh-huh. And in Tennessee, 
if you look at the path to creating these, these programs in Tennessee, uh, these are focused on community colleges, and they have a sector in Tennessee called Colleges of Applied Technology. These are not funding students getting bachelor's degrees. They're funding students getting shorter-term degrees. Now, of course, some of those students will transfer on to four-year schools. But this is a very workforce-oriented program. Um, Tennessee is a state that has been booming. A lot of employers there have struggled to find the skilled workers they need. There are shortages in critical sectors. And businesses in Michigan and Tennessee and in other places as well understand that uh, in order for them to be successful, they need to have access to a skilled workforce. And with the price of tuition going up so much, and with many other barriers to accessing higher education, it's really hard to entice enough students to get degrees and credentials. So a free college program, even if it's much less generous than what we have here in Kalamazoo, turns out to be a powerful messaging tool around the idea that everyone should be going on to get some kind of post-secondary education and training. And so business support and buy-in was critical in Tennessee. I think the leaders in Tennessee also understood when they created this program that a, a third of their high school graduates were not going on to any kind of post-secondary education. And as a result, we're not getting very good jobs. And that seemed to be a tremendous waste, tremendous waste of the state's human capital. So this was both uh, an, an, an equity play to bring those students who were disproportionately low income, to bring more of the students onto a post-secondary pathway, and to make sure that there was a, a workforce that would support um, Tennessee's economy. So that's the path. It combines um, equity concerns and and serving the needs of workers to get better jobs and the need of employers to, to be able to hire better workers or more skilled workers, we should say. And, and certainly the jobs of the 21st century going forward are not the same jobs, you know, that, that were there that built a solid middle class like we used to have in the 20th century. I remember the middle class. I really do. Uh, <laughs> and they... They got to learn new things. I mean, the, the competition with with other countries is more intense. It's a global economy, and uh, I, I wonder if you know some of the new schools, the uh, community colleges, etc. Are they uh, doing programs that can, you know, meet the challenges of the twenty uh, twenties? And, and I would think you yeah, know, Republicans would buy into that. Maybe. Go ahead. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think that's why at the local level you have seen this, this movement uh, to create tuition-free college programs that has been really, really very nonpartisan. Mm -hmm. uh, community colleges play an important role in regional economies. They tend to be called on by regional businesses when they're in need of, of new kinds of workers. I was talking to someone in Iowa recently, and they have a real shortage of journalists, and they turned to the community college to create a training program for uh, media for for uh, yeah print print and 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 television journalism in our community we were short of manufacturing production technicians and our community college has scaled up to train in that profession um, there are perennial shortages of welders another big training program our com our community college has here is uh, wind turbine maintenance uh -huh. and repair people uh -huh. you gotta like the heights, the tall heights to do that program. <laughs> that's a very, I mean, that's a new, that's a, just a small example of a very new technology where um, 
the, the, the labor market by itself isn't going to meet the need for that maintenance and repair of this new energy technology. So community colleges step in, and, and the business community values community colleges tremendously for this. Um, yeah, so, I, I mean, going back to your point about our, our education system, we, we really have an education system that was set up around the, the turn of the 20th century, and of course we're now 21 years into the 21st century. Yeah. And it's increasingly clear that that a, a, a first to twelfth grade education, or even a K through twelve education, yeah. is not enough. Right. It might have been enough in 1950 or even in 1970, but it's not enough today. And one of the things to me that was interesting about the plan that the president announced uh, recently, that included a a component of a free college program, is in that very same plan. There was a plan for a universal pre-K experience for three- yes. and four-year-olds. So the argument was that 13 years of education may have been good 100 years ago, but today maybe we need 16 or 17 years of education. Yeah, we didn't even have electric cars back then. My goodness, you know, people could work in, uh, in you know, in Detroit in the uh, GM and Ford and Chrysler and have a solid job that their fathers had and... Uh, it's it's not like that anymore. We have a new challenge. No, it isn't. And, and with the advent of computerization in all of those industries, you can't come right out of high school and, and go into an auto company and, and work your way up. You need to have wow. computer literacy and you need to have college degrees. But there are wow. many emerging areas of technology. And of course, the pandemic has underscored the need for reliable Broadband, broadband installation, maintenance, that's not a four-year college degree job, and yet it's a, it's a good job, and that's just an example of how the economy changes, and the, the education and training system also needs to respond to that. Ah, uh, we can do it. We're America. We can do it. Eh, at least I think so anyway. For those who may have just so. tuned in, Bert Cohen here. The show is Keeping Democracy Alive, and... Uh, our founders, America's founders, knew that education was key to keeping democracy alive. Our guest today is Michelle Miller-Adams, uh, who's written a new book, The Path to Free College in Pursuit of Access, Equity, and Prosperity. And I wonder, in what ways is there, in 2021, a raging national debate about tuition-free college? I mean, if it's so, uh, on the face of it, good for everybody, why is there a raging national debate? Well, it's, it's complicated, uh, and some of that debate is between the um, Democratic Party and the uh, Republicans in, as you mentioned, that very, very narrowly divided Congress, with the Senate as narrowly divided as it can be, uh, the proposals, the education-related pros proposals that President Biden has made in his American Families Plan there's $109 billion in there for tuition-free community college. There's a sizable increase in Pell Grants for low-income students. There's tuition support for students attending minority-serving institutions like historically black colleges and universities. There's money for community colleges. Can that be translated in this very deeply divided Congress into legislation that can pass? That's one question and one debate. But there's another debate going on in Washington, which is between the Biden administration proposals and uh, people and, and policymakers to its left. And that concerns some of the more um, comprehensive and ambitious proposals that the Biden administration supported during the campaign, including 
a tuition-free college program that would cover four-year public universities for families up to $125,000, generous uh, student debt relief. Uh, and I don't think it's that the Biden administration has walked away from those things. In fact, I, I believe they're trying to pursue the student debt issue through non-legislative means as much as they can. Mm. It's that in um, the, the reality of the current political situation, it will be hard to pass this more narrow workforce-oriented uh, community college, free, free college program that enjoys business support. It will be hard to pass that and, and possibly and, 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 and probably impossible at this point to pass something like Senator Sanders' plan, the mm-hmm. College for All plan. So I think it's a recognition of political reality more than a, a, a statement of principle. And you talked about uh, debt, student debt. That's you know, I, I I speak regularly with a friend who has a significant college debt, and she's you know she's uh, closer to my age. Uh, she's in her sixties, and there's still a college debt. And you say that there's some non-legislative uh, um, remedies for that, possibly. Well, it, 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 there hasn't been a lot of movement on on reducing college debt or eliminating college debt. You know, I think that, the, you know, most obviously the debate is, well, why should my debt be reduced and some other people's not? What about doing away with that, with the college debt, giving them a, a you know, a check to cover it? It's such a hard question. Yes. And I, I do think <laughs> the Biden administration, you know, that the numbers that are thrown around are a, a $10,000 across the board reduction in everyone's student debt, um, Elizabeth Warren's preferred number is a $50,000 reduction in everyone's student debt. If you look at students who have student loan debt, um, those who have it, which is not everyone, but on average, they, I believe they have about $37,000 worth of debt. Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. $10,000 debt reduction on average would be a good start, but it obviously wouldn't resolve the problem. I think it's very possible that the Biden administration will end up with a plan that's somewhere between those two numbers. Mm -hmm. It's not that many people who have those very, very high levels of debt. Um, But the the problem with uh, student loan debt relief, which I want to be absolutely clear, it's something we should do because right now it's such a an overhang on the economy, on individuals' prospects. Students are having to delay. Um, buying houses, getting married, having kids, uh, moving out of their parents' basements because they have student loan debt. It's a real economic drag, not just, and this is why people should support it, it's not just a drag for the students who have the debt. It's a drag on the economy. It's a drag on economic growth for everyone. And of course, um, the rising cost of college and the unaffordability of many college opportunities, and to be quite honest, the rise of private for-profit colleges, where mm. the debt problem is the most acute, True. Uh, have put students have led students into a situation that is not fair, and it's not fair to compare, oh, well, I went through college without debt. Well, my tuition in today's dollars would have been $3,000 a year, not $15,000 a year. So it's not a fair comparison. Right. But you have to do more than just debt relief, because if you do debt relief, you still have a system right now where students are going to still rack up debt. You still have private colleges uh, recruiting students and and not giving them private for-profits and not giving them valuable degrees. You haven't addressed the high cost of college issue. Uh, So 
pairing a, a, a debt reduction program with tighter regulation of for-profits with a, free, a national free college program makes much more sense than just debt relief, uh, which will you know, temporarily resolve the problem for some people, but will not actually solve the issue of higher ed being very much in demand and highly unaffordable. And I know conservatives, as opposed to right wingers, uh, they 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 prefer, you know, local solutions rather than a, a one big, one size fits all program. And there's uh, lacking a central organizing entity. So there's the place based scholarship model adopted by some 200 communities in 20 states since its inception in 2005. I wonder about uh, this idea. Is that uh, more attractive to uh, conservatives? I I think it is. Um, As I mentioned earlier, many of these programs have uh, taken root in places that are conservative, and they've been largely, they've drawn bipartisan support, or they've been largely nonpartisan. And of course, we've seen bipartisanship in these state-level programs. Um, the the growth of these promised programs or place-based scholarship programs in local communities and states has been very interesting and very exciting, especially when you pair it with growing support for uh, free college at the national level. You kind of have seen over the past few years this Uh, That place-based scholarship movement is a a grassroots movement. No one is in charge of it. As you said, there's no central organization of place-based scholarship programs. These programs bubble up from the local community. They build on local assets. They respond to local needs. They offer offer different kinds of benefits. And so it's a really beautiful kind of heterogeneous local innovation. However, it leaves many people out, and there's a lot of built-in inequality if you happen to grow up in Kalamazoo and attend Kalamazoo public schools, you're going to go to college tuition-free. If you happen to grow up in a community just a few minutes away from us or a few miles, yeah, a few minutes away from us, you you will not go to college tuition-free. And if you are an adult worker without a degree in Tennessee or Michigan, you can go back to community college tuition-free. But if you're in uh, another state, a neighboring state, you can't. So there's a lot of inequality that results from this patchwork system. I don't want to downplay the difficulty, though, of creating a national program. Uh, I don't think it's that hard to do a student debt reduction program at a national level because that touches individual students. But um, uh, the the challenge with a free college program, because what, what the president and everyone else who's proposed these has proposed is there's usually a uh, states need to buy into it. There's some shared mm-hmm. responsibility, shared funding with the federal government bearing most of the costs. But we really have 50 different systems of higher education across our 50 different states. True. And states invest radically different levels of money in their higher ed sectors. I looked that up the other day. Your state in New Hampshire, I think the, the per student public state investment is only about $3,000. In Wyoming, I think it's seventeen thousand dollars. So there's a, you know, it's it's really hard to think of how you implement this system in this decentralized uh, educational environment that we have. Yeah, some solutions need federal buy-in. Imagine that. And you know, it's, <laughs> yep. it's it, it. Well, you've talked about the Promise programs a little bit, and I, I think we've we've mentioned it a few times, but I'm not clear what what you mean by Promise program. 
Right. So promise is a it's a term that that anyone many people use to mean many different things, and I, I use it sometimes. I probably shouldn't as a shorthand for these place-based scholarship programs that are rooted in local communities or in states. And the reason I do that is because many of them are called the Kalamazoo Promise, the Tennessee Promise, uh-huh. the El Dorado Promise, the Pittsburgh Promise. Um, but uh, promise is a term that no one, no one owns the rights to, so it's used yeah. for radically different things. There is a national organization called College Promise, which is an umbrella organization that um, includes, it's an advocacy organization, but it includes many types of programs that seek to make uh, college free or affordable in local communities and states. So when we talk about the promise movement, what we're really talking about is this spread of um, scholarships in local communities, tuition free paths to college in local communities and in states. Uh-huh. Well, thank you for that. And, you know, today we take free public schools, at least 1 through 12, for granted. That hasn't always been the case. There was controversy in the 19th century. Not everyone supported the radical idea of what they then called common schools. Is the current discussion over tuition-free college kind of a continuance of that? Yes, it's a, it's a, it's a reminder of it. And I wouldn't say it's a continuation because we did settle on the idea that everyone should go uh, to high school <laughs> and it should be paid for by taxes and it's compulsory. Uh, so it's a universal free K through 12 system of education that we have now. But you're absolutely right. It, that was a contentious debate in the late 19th century, well into the 20th century. And when you go back and, and read that debate, which, which I have read some about, it's strikingly similar to the debate we're having today over free college. Why should I pay for other uh, people's children to go to high school for free? If they want to go to high school, shouldn't they pay for it themselves? They're the ones who are going to reap the gains from it. It's too expensive. We can't afford it. And um, so the debate is really reminiscent of that, that earlier debate over extending free, universal, compulsory education beyond where it started, which was grade eight. So, but yeah, there was an even earlier debate over, over the common school. We as a society have decided that we want to live in a country where people get educated, at least through 12th grade. And we may be at the point of deciding that we actually want to live in a country where people have access to a free public education beyond grade 12. And that's what the free college debate is is really about. And we, you know, we're we're competing, as we said, uh, you know, it's a global economy. Shipping, it, you know, it, it just erases distances and borders. And the U.S. system of health insurance is often compared unfavorably to that of Europe. Some free college advocates say that the U.S. is behind Europe on this issue as well. Many European universities have long been tuition-free, but you consider that a bit of an apples and oranges argument. Why is that? I do. Uh, it is true that European, our European peers, other rich developed countries have uh, provided some of their young people with a tuition-free path through university. But it is an apples to oranges comparison because that path was, was narrow and really only some students got to travel that tuition free path to higher ed. Uh, in a place like Germany, there's a robust um, apprenticeship system where 
uh, students who are not on that path to free university may instead get really high-value uh, skills training that puts them into a good job. So the systems look different. In the U.S., we had a very democratic, small-D democratic system of higher education. Lots of different types of institutions, all different kinds of students can go on beyond high school and find something that they can be successful at. And when our system was low-D, small-D democratic mm -hmm. and also affordable, that was wonderful. But what has happened is getting a college degree, especially in the four-year sector and especially in the public four-year sector, um, has the, the rate of growth in tuition has been so high that even though there's access, there isn't affordability. And so the systems mm. are, are quite different. In Europe, I will add that as more and more students came on to that free university path, it has become harder for these European states to pay for it. And in some states, including the UK, they've backed away from that free university tuition. They have an, a pretty innovative way of funding uh, universities now in the UK, but it, it's not free. So there have been changes on both, both sides of the Atlantic. And many of us remember, probably most people listening, that 2019's Operation Varsity Blues, the college bribery scheme, which made headlines all over the place involving families of several high-profile entertainers and financiers, was merely an extreme variation on long-standing practices. I'll tell you, talking to people I know, they all thought, yeah, so what's the big, you know, this is not news, this has been, you know... People, wealthy people have been doing this for a long time. I've often wondered about that. Do tell. Yes, the, the Varsity Blue scandal was uh, shocking in terms of some of the things that, that people did and who was involved, but it wasn't in the least bit surprising. Um, it did cross this line into being illegal, some of the things that were done. But the, the core idea that, that you as a, a privileged parent can do some things to help your right. kid uh, get into a better college is, is, is commonplace. Yes. It has been going on for a long time. It was oh, sort yeah. of just an extreme example of what happens all the time. Um, higher income students who are able to take and retake uh, college admission uh, exams, uh. SATs, SATs, uh, parents who are able to get um, disability diagnoses for their students to get them extra resources, extra time for their children to take, uh, to take tests, um, private consultants who will help you write your college admission essays. These things are all perfectly legal and, and common practice. And one of the interesting things about these place-based scholarship programs, as in Kalamazoo and the others I've been talking about, um, part of what they try to do is bring into existence or catalyze some of the kinds of uh, advantages that higher income students have. So, for example, in Kalamazoo now, uh, the school district will um, pay for you to, you, you will take an AP class if you're anywhere near being able to pass one, and then the district will pay for you to take that AP test. So it doesn't depend on family income, whether you're going mm -hmm. to be able to get advanced placement credit. Similarly, there's now in-school um, SAT, ACT, prep, test-taking, PSAT. Uh, so, you know, those are some of the things that these place-based scholarships try to do to try to level that college admission, college application playing field, which is very uneven. 
Yeah, it sure is. And uh, we like to think that we have a, a level playing field, at least to start out, but that's rarely the case. Well, for those who may have just tuned in, Bert Cohen here, the show is Keeping Democracy Alive. We're talking about something essential to keeping democracy alive, college education. Our guest is Michelle Miller-Adams, got a new book out, The Path to Free College in Pursuit of Access, Equity, and Prosperity. One, here's the concern that non-deserving students might take unfair advantage of these programs. Uh, there was a letter to the editor in the Washington Post, which I saw from a Terry Harbonic. He said, so far, no one has been able to adequately explain to me why I must pay to educate anyone else for free. I pay college tuition for three. I should not be compelled to pay for anyone else's education. What would you say to Mr. Harbonic? I guess I would say, um, would you pay, do you, do you make the same argument when you say I shouldn't be paying for public schools because I don't have children? Do you want to live in a society where people can't afford to get an education? And um, I, I understand, uh, I, I understand, I feel like to some extent that's a very natural reaction, but you can extend that reaction to any number of things. I ride my bike and don't drive a car. Why am I paying for roads? Right. I don't support some of our military engagements. Why Indeed. am I paying for our military budget? I don't use parks, yet I pay for parks. So um, it is a societal decision what we as a public, we as a society are going to support. And we're coming around to the point of saying that we are going to start supporting, maybe, I don't know yet, but we're close, uh, more years of public education, because that's what we as a society want to do and want to provide. So it's not an individual issue like, I don't want to pay for other people's kids to go to school, but I have a social contract. I'm part of the society. I may not agree, but our society has decided that now we're going to provide 14 years of education instead of 12 or 15 instead of 13. So I think it's just kind of a different way of thinking about our social responsibilities to each other. And we we are part of a society. You know, we, as you say, roads. I mean, the the, the most horrible example of, of socialism is snow plowing. You know, yeah. <laughs> you only get it if you live in a community that you pay taxes to provide it. And, and the other thing <laughs> I want to say, I do think this is why so much of the national free college discussion right now and state discussion has focused on the community college sector. Nobody thinks that people like that letter writer should be paying for rich students to go to college. Right, right. But it turns out that rich students don't go to community college. And when people like uh, uh, Senator Sanders and others have put forward Three four-year college plans, most of these have income ceilings. And the one that um, uh, President Biden supported during the campaign said that four-year public universities would be tuition-free for families up to $125,000. Right. Now, you can argue what what that represents. That's a different income level in different parts of the nation. Oh, yeah. But um, no one is talking about sending uh, rich kids to Harvard for free. And in fact... Yeah. 
you earn family income anywhere up to about the median of the country in the sixty to seventy thousand dollar range, you can go to those elite private institutions already tuition free because out of their endowments they support paying tuition for more moderate income students who are attending there. I wonder too about the five twenty nine programs if that's equitable. Those are programs that. I understand they do help uh, pay for uh, uh, college uh, tuition. Uh, is that something that can be uh, broadened and expanded? I don't know how many people really can get those 529 programs, how equitable that is. Yes. Uh, the problem with 529 programs is the same problem you have with like health savings accounts, right? It's a savings vehicle that can help you pay for college down the road. But one, you need to know about it. You need to understand it. You need to be able to access it. You need to think ahead and put money into it that you may not have at the present. So you absolutely are right. And when you look at who has 529 plans, it is not poor poor families. And it's not even moderate income families. It tends to be more affluent families. It's a a barrier. It's a barrier. Simply uh, having a savings vehicle available that people can use if they can take advantage of it is very different from being able to send a message to your students at whatever age they are, which is what happens today in Kalamazoo and in Tennessee, that when you get ready for college, you're not going to have to worry about tuition because it's going to be free, at least at some types of institutions. And that's a very different... um, Very different way to reach people. That word free is very powerful because yeah. it takes down, it takes away all kinds of process issues you have to navigate around 529s or applying for Pell Grants. And you still wind up applying for Pell Grants. It's just you already know you're going to be able to afford to go. So the Pell Grant application process represents something different. And the whole idea of free stuff. You know, people don't say, well, free stuff when it comes to the military. They don't have any complaints about that. But it's investing in in our economic future, I think. And I, I'm getting the sense that, you know, you got to have buy-ins from the various cons- important constituencies and business communities. I'm getting the sense from talking to you that they're, they're starting to, to buy into that. What's, what's your sense? And the Biden administration is in record in support of a strategy like the America's College Promise proposal introduced by President Obama. Where does that now stand in Biden's agenda? And and what's your what's right. your hope for the future? So, um, yes, I think the right way to talk about this uh, free college idea is not as an expense, but as an investment. It's yes. an investment in making sure that people can realize their full potential as individuals and workers, And it's an investment in the health of our economy and our global competitiveness and our our national competitiveness. Uh, The business community is essential because when we're talking about training people for the workforce, um, it's businesses that have uh, the, the opportunity to hire those people. And when the business community as a whole, not all of it, but some of its leading organizations are saying, we need people with more than high school diplomas and we need people with more than 12th grade skills then you have to listen, and you actually have to listen even if you're a Republican because you're very (laughs) closely supported by the business community. The America's College Promise proposal made by uh, President Obama in uh, 2015 in his State of the Union was a very general proposal. 
it didn't go anywhere because if you remember, Congress was in Republican hands at that point, and they basically didn't want to move any mm. legislation forward that came out of the Obama administration. Mm-hmm. But it, the Biden proposal that was in the American Families Plan about a month ago or a few weeks ago looks very, very similar to that America's College Promise Plan. It is a shared federal state responsibility. It focuses on community colleges. It brings new resources to low-income students. It uh, provides community colleges with resources to provide support so students are successful once they get in the door. Uh, there are a lot of a lot of great things in that plan, but uh, the the Obama plan is a, a precursor of it. But it was a very general; it never was translated uh-huh. into policy. Uh-huh. It, was, it never became law. Well, as one generally understands it, uh, you know, democracy is not a spectator sport. People need to get involved. What can people do if they want to push this forward? And I do think. We're we're on the way to there, but we got to push together. What can people do? There are a number of uh, advocacy organizations at the national level, including College Promise, which I mentioned. There's a more student voice oriented organization called Rise. There's an organization called the Free Campaign for Free College Tuition. Yeah. Uh, one can sign up for their mailing list, send them money, do those kinds of things. But right now. Uh, the battle over whether we're going to have a national free college program is is moving to Congress. And there is a bill that's been introduced ah. by Senator Patty Murray that resembles, that, that moves forward the Biden proposal. There are actually three free college bills um, that have been introduced in Congress right now. But I think, you know, you do what you do in a democracy. You reach out to your legislators right. and you use things like social media to draw attention to the fact that this is within our reach. If our legislators, our elected representatives, choose to support it, um, this is an investment that we can make as a society now, and it is in the interest of, of our general interest as well. So I think it's the usual uh, practitioner, democracy practitioner activities, letters to elected representatives, um, you know, those kinds of things. And it does matter. Absolutely, it does matter. Well, thank you so much. This is very interesting and, dare I say, hopeful. Michelle Miller-Adams. It is a hopeful field. It is a pleasure to work in a field that offers um, hope and promise. So thank you so much for having me on your, your podcast. Thank you. And the book is The Path to Free College in the Pursuit of Access, Equity, and Prosperity, Michelle Miller-Adams. Thanks so much for being with us. Thank you, Bert. Take care. Thank you.